Hello to our audience and welcome to this latest Science Custom podcast created in partnership with Bold, the blog on learning and development. I'm Sean Sanders, Director and Senior Editor for Custom Publishing at Science, and I'm delighted that you're joining me for this series of podcast interviews with outstanding researchers who are attempting to make positive changes in the lives of children and adolescents by seeking practical solutions for a complex world. Apart from this common goal, they are also recipients of the prestigious Klaus J. Jacobs Research Prize, a 1 million Swiss francs grant awarded by the Jacobs Foundation that recognizes exceptional achievements in the field of child and youth development. Today, I'm very pleased to welcome Dr. Michael Tomasello. Michael is the James F. Bonk Distinguished Professor of Psychology and Neuroscience at Duke University. His work hopes to uncover the psychological processes of social cognition, social learning, cooperation, and communication that contribute to our uniqueness as humans. Michael, I'm so pleased to have the opportunity to talk with you about some of the fascinating research that you're doing. So thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks, Sean. Happy to be here. So, Michael, I'd like to start by looking at the importance of social interaction. Uh, A stable society depends in part on social agreements between members of that society, and that includes fairness and cooperation. Can you begin by talking generally about these concepts and what they mean? Well, I've taken an evolutionary approach to these concepts, where they came from as humans uh, went along their evolutionary path. And I think there are two essential steps. One of them is my fairness and cooperation with other individuals. So I'm collaborating with you. Let's say we're going collaboratively hunting or something. And there are issues of uh, us cooperating together to achieve our joint goal. And there are issues of fairness when it comes time to dividing up the uh, spoils of our uh, of our collaborative hunt. And so that's me in relating to you as an individual. And I think evolutionarily, that was the first step that already distinguishes us from apes. So we've done comparative studies where we compare apes and young human children in these kind of collaborative activities where they share the spoils at the end and the children are more collaborative and they're sharing more fairly than are the apes. But then the second step is the way you phrased it in terms of society was when humans became modern humans and started living in cultures. And now you've got to cooperate with a whole wide group and some of whom you don't even know. And so now you're governed by social norms that you're supposed to follow the rules in order to cooperate, but it's much less personal than the direct collaboration that I was talking about before. Do we know when these concepts develop in children? We know a good bit about that. So before about three years of age, children are cooperating and showing signs of fairness with other individuals. For example, you put them collaborating, pulling in something together where they both have to pull at the same time. And they know to work together. And uh, when they get the stuff at the end, they, they share it. So that's two to three-year-old children are already doing that. And then after about age three, they start being able to understand about things being distributed more widely in a group, about everyone pulling their weight in a group activity, about the social norms that apply to everyone. And after age three, they actually start enforcing social norms. So they know that something is the rules They start holding other people to that and saying, hey, you know, you're not supposed to do that. Yeah. So there's a big break at around age three where it goes from being individual, interpersonal senses of cooperation and fairness to societal level beginning. I mean, they're just getting the idea of a group level, let's say, ultimately to societal level after age three. Our societies have evolved quite rapidly from small tribal groups to very large cities. 
have we managed to evolve as far as cooperation and fairness as quickly or has that impacted us in some way? Well, people ask me all the time that you're, you're talking about how humans are biologically evolved to be cooperative, but the world looks like a mess. How, how is that? And I think it's exactly what you said. Our biological propensities for cooperation and fairness uh, have not quite kept up with the contemporary world where you're in these huge multicultural uh, groups and our evolved cooperative tendencies and skills have not quite adjusted to that. So in evolutionarily, it would have been clear the group level cooperation would have been my group. So this is the in-group, out-group psychology that we all know about. And uh, humans evolved to be cooperative within their group. And so that's a cause of a huge portion of the world's problems today is the in-group, out-group dimension that we are evolved to cooperate only with our in-group. Now, what do your results tell us about how children learn to interact with adults and with other children? Interestingly, adults and children sort of elicit different modes of interaction uh, from young children. So let's say these children below three years of age that we were speaking about a moment ago, they are mainly adapted for interacting with adults. So if you put two two-year-olds or two-year-olds, two-and-a-half-year-olds, and you put them on a floor together, they tend to play mostly in parallel. And they sort of, you know, they, they do one little act toward the other kid. Maybe they take his toy. Maybe they offer him something nicely. And then it's over. But it's mostly in parallel. They can't carry on an extended conversation, these little toddlers. But then you look at them with an adult and they do all the things that I've spent my career studying a lot of uh, is uh, things like interacting in what we call joint attention, where we share attention to something. We communicate, very pointing and language. And they just do much, much less of this with another peer. They're really adapted to do it with an adult. And then the peers, yes, they have some peer interactions before age three, but it's really after age three where they really start engaging with peers. The peer is no more competent than them. The adult is sort of scaffolding them and helping them in the social interaction. So after three years old, they're both competent enough that you can have really significant peer interactions. And what the kids are doing with the adults is mainly learning stuff. So the adults teaching them and they're learning how to behave in the world from the adult. The adult is the expert. The adult is the authority. If I'm collaborating and I'm not really pulling my weight, the adult helps me do my part. My little you know, two and a half year old peer over there doesn't help me do my part. Can the work that you're doing help us understand human behavior in, in highly social situations? So I would say that based on this evolutionary analysis, cooperation in large groups is especially difficult for a lot of reasons. You can also get away with cheating and free riding better in anonymous large groups than you can in a small intimate group. There are three ways that we can we really promote cooperation in these large impersonal groups. One is social norms. And so social norms have a history of their own. You can take something like the social norm for mask wearing in America. It's been changing. And so now if people don't wear masks, you know, the other people look at them like, are you trying to give us the disease or what? So the social norm enforces cooperation even among impersonal groups. But in a more positive direction, we begin to feel more close to others and more solid group solidarity if we engage in some collaborative activity together. So if there's some big thing we all need to work on together, uh, this brings people closer. That sometimes works even more strongly in competition with other groups. We're working together to make this work and somebody else over there is trying something else. 
And the third thing, which is really a cause of a lot of our problems, is that in the evolution of human cultural groups, one of the ways you're identified as a member of your group is by conformity and similarity. So somebody who talks like me and wears clothes like me and eats the same foods as me, okay, they're from my group and I can trust them. And somebody else who doesn't talk like me, who eats funny foods, uh, who dresses funny, uh, I don't really understand where they're coming from. I don't feel solidarity with them to the same degree. So it's just, they're this incredible set of studies on minimal groups where you just give children a green t-shirt and you say, you're in the green group. And you give somebody else an orange t-shirt and you say, you're in the orange group. And now they start behaving toward green, their green group members whom they don't even know, more pro-social, more cooperative and stuff like that. So there's the two positive things then are solidarity through cooperation and a shared goal and a shared purpose and similarity. And the similarity is what causes us a lot of problems um, today with a, where the prejudice is built on, I just see somebody dressed funny and then I decide I don't trust them or whatever. That's something that evolved biologically that is getting in the way of the, the, the way the world is organized socially today. So some of your recent work is on social closeness and how shared experiences may influence behavior, especially in children. Can you tell us about this work and what you've learned? Well, uh, this is um, in collaboration with my graduate student, Walter Wolf. And what he had found first with adults, and then we applied it to children, is that something incredibly simple, like just watching something together, watching a little video or something like that, as opposed to we're watching two separate videos. So we're either sitting there and we're watching the same video, or we're sitting there and you're watching one and I'm watching a different one. And then we test later for how close you feel to that partner. With adults, you ask them questions. With children, you see how comfortable they are approaching that person and so forth. Just sharing experience makes you feel closer to the other person. And, you know, it's really sharing in a broad sense is almost definitional of how close we are to someone as a social partner. So if you just think about what defines who are your closest friends and who are just your acquaintances, it's because with your closest friends, you share all kinds of things. You share experiences. Maybe you've shared with them about your childhood. And if you want to become uh, close to somebody, one of the ways you do it is by sharing stuff with them, telling them stuff about yourself and going to things and doing things together. So sharing experience is almost the main thing that defines the closeness of our social relationships. And you can already see this in two-year-old children that just watching a film together versus watching two separate screens, uh, they feel more close to the uh, adult uh, with whom they uh, watch something together. So just one more question for you, Michael, and, and this is something I'm asking all the interviewees. How will the work that you're doing have a measurable impact on the lives of children and how can this be assessed? Well, I'll just say that I've, I've had two sort of contacts with people who really apply work to the everyday lives of children. I myself have not done very much of that. And one is uh, educators. I've actually been fairly recently communicating with some educators who want to bring more peer cooperation into the classroom. So more kids working together in groups and critiquing one another and so forth, where again, we have this co-equal coordination is what's being developed in addition to the teacher teaching them things, which is obviously part of all education, adults passing on the knowledge to the kids, but they want to develop more of the peer cooperation part of it where children are challenged to explain their ideas more clearly to someone who doesn't pick up what they're trying to say. And the other one is, and from the beginning of my work on joint attention and cooperation and whatnot, 
people who study children with autism, they are missing some components of exactly these things I'm focused on. Cooperation, joint attention, communication, working together. This is their weakness. It's their, the, the social dimension of things. It's not social dimension just like they're, they can be very loving, they can be attached to their parent, but they can't coordinate their minds with others in, in quite the same way, which allows them to collaborate and communicate in the same way. So some people who study uh, children with autism have uh, told me that our basic work trying to look at you know, the evolutionary foundations and the development of uh, these basic capacities for social interaction and engagement and cooperation and fairness have helped them to diagnose what are the exact problems that these children with autism have and to uh, understand them better. Well, Michael, uh, we're going to have to end things there, but it's, it's really been a pleasure talking to you. All the very best of luck uh, with your work and thank you so much for taking the time today. Thank you, Sean. It's a pleasure. And thank you to our podcast audience for joining us today. If you'd like to send us any feedback or suggestions, you're welcome to email me at custompodcast at aaas.org. For more podcasts in this series, please visit the blog on learning and development website by going to bold.expert. Again, thank you so much to our guest, Dr. Michael Tomasello, and to the Jacobs Foundation for making this series possible. I'm Sean Sanders. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.